It was November 19th, 1863, when Abraham Lincoln gave an address of just over 700 words, a very short but powerful speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was known as the Gettysburg Address. And it simply started with Lincoln saying these words, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He was speaking this great speech in the midst of the Civil War that had been erupting in the United States. It had been a, a battle in the United States over the dignity of persons and, and their value and worth. And even though the Constitution had created and said that all people were created equal, there were still people who were not created or given that equality. While the Emancipation Proclamation would be signed by Lincoln, it would take another hundred years and there in the shadow of Lincoln, at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Martin Luther King Jr. stood up on August 28, 1963. And he began his speech by saying these words, Five score years ago, a great American in whose shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Proclamation. He would go on and he would reiterate a phrase that would be well known, so well known, in fact, this speech is known as, I have a dream. I have a dream, MLK would say, that one day this nation would live out its, its meaning, the meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Here, these two leaders had stood, one at Gettysburg, one in Washington, D.C., and through powerful, carefully crafted, thoughtful, and intentional words, they would be leaders who would use their tongues and their words to bring about a revolution in the United States. There would be blood, there would be blood shed, there would be lives lost. But the aim was not by Lincoln or by MLK to create a bloodless or a bloody revolution. Rather, their aim was to see that free men be free everywhere. This careful, measured declaration by both of these men can be countered today by certain politicians who think that Standing up and speaking carefree without a note in front of you is authentic. And yet we have seen, and I'm not talking about the politics here. We have seen that in the power of a tongue, that if words are not carefully thought through and measured out and spoken in very intentional ways, it can create incredible polarization. That just because you are authentically speaking doesn't mean that your authenticity is good. The tongue and every word that is spoken has great power. It is power and we need to understand how revolutions happen 
by the Word of God. Because today there are so many who think that what we need is to take back our nation or to Christianize this world in some way, that there is a loss of, cult, of the loss of a culture war, and so there is this reactionary nature that is going on. And if we are to be people who are measured out by the very Word of God, and we use that, the Word of God, this book is what God has spoken out of his mouth. It's the word that he has created all things. Then we need to understand why the tongue is powerful and how we ought to use it. So the first thing is that James points us to in James chapter 3 verses 3 through 5a is that we need to learn to control our tongues. He makes this point in verses 3, 4, and 5 by using three illustrations from nature. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Here in each of these three pictures, in the in terms of a bit in a horse's mouth, in terms of a rudder on the back of a ship, or in terms of a spark in a dry forest. The point is not how powerful they are, but how much control is needed, and how much control something incredibly small can do. Now, Barbara just mentioned how much she loves horses, and any horse you know if you're going to lead it and guide it well In days gone by, it was common to put the bit in a horse's mouth, and a rider can control a great big beast who can do incredible damage and who can buck you off and who can hurt you. An animal of that great size could be controlled by a person just by having a bit in their mouth. Similarly, a ship, a great big ship in days gone by, could be steered with just a simple rudder on the back. Just this device, uh, as, as one of my kids was learning sailing, it was amazing that just this small instrument on the back of a boat could steer the boat in different directions. Or we could talk for all of those of us who are a little bit uh, of a pyromaniac in the room. We all know the power of playing with fire. That f- fire can be quite fun and enjoyable to play with. And yet, one careless move, one careless act with fire can cause enormous, enormous damage. But why does James go in this letter from talking about not showing favoritism and showing your faith by your works to now talking about the tongue? This isn't a book, in my opinion, that's just been strung together with a whole bunch of random thoughts, as many people do think, but I rather think that James is trying to teach us something powerful about what it means to be people who are not in a position of power in our culture, a people who don't have the kind of influence that when the Christian faith has lost its way in terms of its influence in the world... James is writing, remember, to exiled Christians, formerly Jewish believers who have known dominance in their culture but now suddenly are sidelined. James writes to them because he wants them to recognize that the influence and the power of the tongue is incredibly important to grasp, especially when you've lost 
your power and influence and control. And we know what happens when you lose your power and influence and control. All it takes is just put two kids together, give them one toy, one child takes a toy from the other child, and what happens? Anger. Harsh words. Suddenly a reaction of grabbing. Or think about, maybe you can think of this in terms of the days gone by, if you have siblings. How did you provoke your siblings? Why are you laughing? You know how easy it was to provoke a brother or sister with mere words. That all you had to do was say something. Or we can think of how adults, we can be quite, we can be quite nuanced with our words, and yet our words can still, they can still have innuendo. They can say certain things. And James is writing to, I think especially to the leaders here of the church, and he is speaking to leaders because he knows that leaders have influence when they talk. That politicians can direct the course of a city or a state or a province or even a country by how they speak. And that measured or unmeasured words can make a profound difference to a church that is persecuted and in exile. The fleshly response is that when you have lost your influence, you want to lash back with words. But James, I think, is working out the principle of Proverbs 15, verse 1, a verse that I was taught very early on and still something that I often go back to. As Proverbs 15, 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That the very words that we use can either inflame a situation or they can calm a situation. That James here wants us to learn to get control of the tongue because by it, its influence and effect can be great. And so we have to master this right here. Just those couple of inches in our mouths. That while they're so small in terms of our bodies, they have a profound influence. And I am not lost at the very fact that I'm standing up here this morning, opening my mouth and using words. So James wants us to be measured and controlled with our tongues. The second thing that James here identifies is that he wants us not only to control our tongue, but the second thing is he wants us to realize the power of our tongues. Verses 5b all the way down to 8. James says these words, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For by every for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison." Jesus had said to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, in fact, in Luke chapter 12, verses um, 48, uh, 48 and 49, that Jesus said that every word that we would speak, it would be revealed. 
it would be shown on that day, that final day, that every word spoken, every careless word, sorry, it's Luke 12, verse 3, that every careless word spoken would be judged. As Luke was commenting on last week, there is a judgment that comes and it is done by our words. As Jesus said, what is, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And that every word spoken, whether it's on Twitter, now called X, or on Instagram, or online, or in emails, or texts, no matter how private we think it is, Jesus says there is a day of reckoning for every single word. Every word spoken in private, in a private conversation, every joke made about someone in a mocking way, it will be spoken. And as a result of that, James wants us to realize how powerful the tongue is because there is a day of reckoning coming where every word will be measured out by God. The tongue, he says, picking up this image of the spark, it can set a world on fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we know that the carelessness that can happen with simple things like sparks or flames can cause tremendous damage. When James is talking about having the whole world set on fire, he pictures in his day the dry, arid climate of of where he lives. That he lives in a dry, arid place, and it doesn't have super lush forests everywhere, but rather grassy hills, and so that a careless spark could cause suddenly a a storm of fire to be sweeping up and down hills. We've seen that in British Columbia when there's been forest fires, or I think specifically of an event in California. California has been known because of its wildfires that have grass fires and the hill fires that go on. An incredible caution has been, reminded, has been given as a reminder to the citizens of California. Because a couple years ago, at a gender reveal party, of all places, in the attempt to show friends if it was going to be a boy or a girl, the state of California was suddenly set ablaze. In a careless act at a party with a gender reveal surprise that went entirely wrong, homes were burnt to the ground and neighborhoods were utterly destroyed. All because of a careless moment at a gender reveal party with fire. James says in the same way, the tongue is like a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. If we don't learn to control this little piece of flesh in our mouths... James says that it can adopt the system of the world. So when he talks about a world of unrighteousness, what he's referring to there is is the idea of the system and the way of thinking of this world. And that if we don't learn to not speak like the world that is around us, that we can set the world ablaze. It can be like a hellish fire. That it can bring great condemnation. He compares it to how how difficult it is to control the tongue by comparing it to animals. That man has been given this responsibility, this joyful privilege of having dominion and having stewardship over the creation. And and animals can be tamed. We see how, how oxen can plow land and how we can ride horses and we can do all sorts of great things. But the tongue of the animal is not tameable. We have a cockatiel in our home, Jawa. Jawa is 
a cute and noisy bird. Some people in our home love him more than others. And there are times where none of us love him. But don't tell him I said this to you. Jawa knows about 25 to 30-ish words. It's quite fun. You can play peekaboo with him and hold up a towel and say, where's Jawa? And move the towel and he'll say, peekaboo. And it's so adorable. But sometimes when you let him out of the cage and he flies off and he's running across the carpet, you'll say, come here, Jawa. And he'll go, come here, Jawa. And he'll run away from you. That even though he knows the very things that we're saying, he can do the complete opposite and he can say things in the moment that they're the exact opposite of what you're asking him to do. You can train an animal, you can teach them all sorts of tricks, but you can't control their tongues. The, the breeder who uh, we got Jawa from has a larger, I think a cockatoo named Oscar. And Oscar came from an abusive home. And so when you enter the store of the breeder, this bird, if he is caught at the wrong moment, might use some colorful language to customers walking in. And no matter how much the breeder has tried to change the behavior of this bird, there is no taming its tongue. I don't know how that's going for his business, but certainly it reveals, as what James says here, that we can tame animals, but we can't tame their tongues. Because it's, we can't tame even our own tongues. This is why counselors, they, they are so attuned to listen for little words. That you can go to a counselor and you can talk and, and your talk reveals something deep about your heart. Because it's in little words that actually reveal big things about us. What we think about ourselves. What we think about others. And James wants us to realize how powerful the tongue is. You see, Adam, he was given this responsibility of naming all the animals. He was given dominion. Yet what could he not control? He could not control his very own tongue. That when he was given the instructions by God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he passes on information to Eve. And Eve seems to relay information that says, we are not able to eat nor touch the tree. As though the word of God needed to be added to. And yet Jesus himself was a man who had a tongue. And he still has a tongue. That Jesus in his flesh came and dwelt among us and he lived. And he, he said to his disciples in John uh, John 12, verses uh, 49 and 50, that Jesus had learned to master his own tongue. He said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus did not speak one authentic, unscripted word. Every word 
had been given to him by his father. And he learned, Luke tells us in Luke 2, 52, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor in God with men. He learned obedience, as Hebrews will say. He learned how to control his tongue even from a young age. And by learning to control his tongue, he does not only control his tongue, but he trains his body, the church, to do the same. So that when Jesus was reviled, when he was spit on, and when he was cursed, 1 Peter 2 verse 23 says, When reviled, he did not revile in return, nor did he uh, utter threats of abuse. That he displayed that a spirit-filled life is one that is controlled and it controls even the tongue. And so as James tells us these things, what he is aiming is that the tongue reveals the heart. And unfortunately, we have seen the powerful damage that unscripted political leaders can do when they open their mouths. That it's in those moments where the hot mic catches you off guard. And that doesn't matter if you're on the political left or right. Microphones have no preference. But when they catch you, and when people hear those unscripted moments, the damage that can be done is enormous. You see, we have to know the power of the tongue. We have to control our tongues Because the reason we have been given tongues is the last thing that I want to see from verses 9 through 12 is that we have been given tongues so that we can bless with the tongue. Look at verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James here makes a very clear distinction that either our mouths bring about blessing or they bring about cursing. He picks up the same kind of imagery that Jesus has. Can a good tree bear bad fruit and a bad tree bear good fruit? Can the type of fruit that is on one tree change because it's wanting not to produce figs but olives? Does a spring bring forth salt water? Or can a salt water pond bring forth fresh water? We know the answer is no. That whether it is in public or in private, James condemns uncontrolled speech. Why? And just to be clear, before we answer the why question, James isn't merely talking about dirty talk swearing or cursing, though he does reference cursing. What he is talking about is from the slightest thing, from innuendo to gossip to slander to criticism that does not aim to build up. He he just cuts across the board because the nature of Christian speech is to bless. And the nature of blessing is that in private or in public, we need to learn how to speak 
He says, you can't have a relationship with God and say that all is good and then be speaking ill about fellow Christians or other people. Why is that? Why can we not bless God in one moment and curse others? He says, because humanity has been made to be blessed by God. We are made in the image and likeness of God, he says. Do you see that? And so what God has blessed, he blessed Adam, he blessed Eve. It means that we are not to be the people of all people, people who have received the creational blessing, who have been given blessing to speak blessing. We are not to be people who utter back threats, who utter curses, who condemn critically, who have critical negative speech that does not aim to build up. That he wants us to understand that what we have been made is that we have been made in the image and likeness of God, receiving a blessing so that just as we have received a blessing, we would bless the world. To make this point, we just go back to the book of Genesis. When God blessed, he blessed Abraham. He said, I will bless you and I will make your name great and those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. But I made you to be a blessing to the entire world. But Abraham would be tested. And we know from Genesis chapter 22 that when Abraham faced a great test, he, he was tested in a way that was astonishing, asking to give up his very own son. But when he had obeyed and passed the test, the Lord said in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see here, the blessing that is given to Abraham is to extend to the world. So that even the descendants of Abraham, we are told, are to possess the gates of their enemies. Now, lest we think and get the idea that being a people who speak blessing means that we are just to be people who are to be nice. This idea of niceness is so profoundly modern and it is so profoundly Canadian that we maybe need to step back and think a little bit about one of our cultural weaknesses. That maybe we need to see that just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, that we are to, Luke 6, 27 and 28, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, Jesus said. Lest we think that being a person of blessing equals niceness. Jesus makes it clear throughout the Bible and God reveals to us that blessing does not mean niceness. It includes niceness, but it goes way beyond niceness. Sorry, Canada. Let's learn a little bit from this, right? When we... I often will pray the words of Revelation 21 that we're longing for and praying for the day where God will make all things new, when he will wipe every tear from your eye. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. It sounds very sentimental and nice. That tissue just wiping away that tear from all the pain and sorrow. And certainly that is true. But when we're praying, Lord, make all things new. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. 
That is a prayer not of niceness. It is a prayer that is asking God to deal with evil and adjust this world according to His sovereign purposes so that one day evil would be removed and eliminated or else converted. And when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, bless them and do good, what he is doing and what he is teaching us is exactly what the Psalms do. We unfortunately call them imprecatory Psalms. But imprecatory Psalms, it gives us the idea that you're allowed to curse people. To to have an imprecatory moment is, is to have a moment of cursing. But when the Psalms utter words of anger, and displeasure because of evil, a longing for God's justice. What we are actually learning to do is we are learning to pray justly, to love mercy. That Paul will say, don't repay your enemies with evil, but rather repay evil with good. Romans 12, 20 and 21. For in doing so, what are you doing? You're heaping burning coals upon their head. That when we bless in such a way, we are praying, one, Lord, either remove evil or two, convert. And that is not me seeking justice. It is asking, God, you've said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Then I'm asking for your justice. And your justice, salvation always comes through judgment. Always. That the way that God works is that He brings His judgment on His Son, and His Son bears that judgment for our sins, or we receive that judgment if we refuse to repent and acknowledge and confess Jesus as Lord. And so when we are praying for the Lord to do justly, we love mercy, we do not pick up the sword of iron, but we pick up the sword of the Spirit. That this is what God has given That we are praying for blessing. And blessing includes that God's will be done in a righteous way. That evil not continue to exist. That either it be removed or it be converted. You see, because we have been made as creational people of blessing. That God made man in his image and his likeness. And we have been redeemed in Jesus Christ. As blessed people, we are both receiving a creational blessing and a redemptive blessing. And so our speech is to be blessing. One of the people in my life who taught me and modeled this principle for me is a man by the name of Phil. In my first pastorate, I had come into a church that had had a long history of division and quarreling and fighting. That business meetings were known to be anything but business. And unfortunately, the way that people treated one another and spoke about one another, both in private and publicly, was incredibly damaging. When, when Phil came on to be what would be an elder in the church, I learned so much from him. I learned so much from him because in all of my weaknesses, in all of my failings, in all of my struggles, he always spoke in a way that worked to build me up and to encourage me. That the word of God, he believed, 
as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for training in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. It's, it's used to shape us and it's used to mold us. And then it's used in a way that is intended to bring about redemption. This is why being critical in a a way that does not build up, James utterly condemns. Whether it's about a family member or a friend or a person you don't like. Because James knows that the way to be revolutionary is not by picking up swords, but by picking up the sword of the Spirit. And that by speaking in a way that learns to control our tongues, we can see how people like Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and many others have spoken in ways that have not incited violence. But a gentle answer has turned away wrath. And it's not just in harshness that we avoid these things, but it's also in the innuendo. But we need to go back to something that Luke had picked up on last week. If the tongue is so hard to control, what do you do when you blow it? Because I guarantee you everybody in this room has said something at some point that they regret. Or we have left something unsaid that we should have said. That James says... We all stumble in many ways. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. You see, learning to be self-controlled with our tongues enables us to learn self-control in so many other areas of our life. So what do we do when we blow it? As Paul will say, if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That this is not some self-improvement project, but rather it is an acknowledgement that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of my tongue and over every word. And therefore my tongue and every word needs to be submitted to him. And when it doesn't submit to him, if we confess our sins, as John will say in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is able and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The way that we bring about change in this world, the way that when we have no influence or power, the way that we bring about revolution is not by conforming to the patterns of this world, but being transformed with the very word of God, and that when we speak measured, careful, thoughtful words that are pleasing before our God, he is pleased to do abundantly more. The God who created all things by his very own mouth is pleased to work through your simple words. So let's be people who speak the creational and redemptive blessing with words. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us. 
I know right now there's probably thoughts of things in people's minds that they've said that they should not have said. And you're impressing upon them in this moment how that was wrong. Lord, would you enable them to confess to you, to turn away from that? Would you give them someone in their life who will help them to to be a mirror back to them, to speak the word of God to them, to bless them so that so that in this moment that we would not stay in sin, but that we would speak as holy people. Thank you that you speak to us words of life, that your word is eternal life for those who believe. But we also pray, Lord, that in a world full of injustice, I know there are people in this room who are struggling with anger and hurt even now because of things that have been said or done to them and they want to say words that should never be spoken. Would you enable them now, Lord, to even in this moment say, Lord, I'm struggling with my tongue. Would you help me? Would you help me to be controlled in my speech so that I might honor you? And Lord, as a church family, would you help us not to be speaking with innuendo or subtleties or gossip or slander or harsh words or critical words that are meant to tear down, but would you enable us to speak the words of the kingdom that are words of life? so that we might be a blessing one to another and to this world, which so desperately needs a model of careful, authentic speech with every word measured, knowing that one day every word spoken in private will be revealed in public. So help us, we pray. Be our wisdom. Be our true word. Be with us, Lord, now and forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.